So you can leave your Bibles open to Mark 12. There's a few scene changes in this book, uh, in this chapter, so leave it open and we'll work our way through it. Let me pray for us before we start. Our Father, this morning, how desperately we come to you for truth and for life this morning. Uh, You are the bread of life and the living water. When we come to you, we won't hunger, we won't thirst. We don't need to hear the words of man this morning. We need to hear from you, O God. And so we come today to be fed and to be satisfied by you. In these moments, would you give us eyes to see, unblock our deaf ears that we might hear, soften our callous hearts that we might believe. And so may faith and love for you grow today as we hear from your word. We need your help for this. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Growing up, I remember going to a store, maybe you're familiar with, uh, called Spencer's Gifts. Uh, They're in all of these malls uh, around Philly, and it's one of those stores that just looking at the store, you sort of feel guilty because there's all kinds of craziness on the inside of the store. But I would often drag my dad to the mall with me just because I wanted to go get some crazy contraption or something that was at Spencer's Gift. And and one day I remember... uh, if, if you've ever seen this pendulum swing that they have there, or maybe you guys have had it, it's this little b- metal ball on a string and then a truss. And all it does is just go back and forth, back and forth. And I wanted the thing, so my dad bought it for me, and I would spend hours and hours just staring at this thing all day. That amused me when I was seven years old. And it amused me so much, and uh, you would find me any, any course of the day just so struck by this pendulum swing and how it would just keep going on and on. You never had to touch the thing. It just went back and forth. And I remember even looking back at my being enamored with this pendulum swing. If I uh, could go back and tell my seven-year-old innocent self uh, that as I look at that today, it sadly looks like a metaphor for what life feels like. Right where life feels like this constant pendulum swing from one direction to the other. These two extremes where, where life can feel really good and life can feel really bad in any given moment. In fact, in the same state of affairs or in the same station of life, you can feel both uh, when, when life hits hard, right? Life can feel like this pendulum swing from gain and then to loss. You can feel and hear good news, And then you can hear bad news, constantly going between these two extremes. Uh, Perhaps even in this stage of life that you find yourself in, uh, you feel this way. Uh, Whether it's it's in the classroom, if if you're a kid and you go to school, you feel it in the classroom, or you might be working in an office tower in a building somewhere. Uh, Perhaps uh, it's when you're parenting children or when you get test results back from the doctor when you went in with such hope. Or perhaps you're married and you feel like this season of marriage is the best season I've ever experienced. There's nothing that can change it. And then all of a sudden something happens and then it's the worst thing you can possibly imagine. And what was good immediately turns bad. There's these constant extremes that we face and and deal with in life. Uh, It's not just our personal lives. It's all around us. Nations rise and then nations fall. There are times of great prosperity in the world, and there are times of great depression in the world. Every minute, a new baby is born and new life is created. And on the opposite side of that, there's death all around us and life is taken away from us. Pendulum swings in life, they don't just happen circumstantially, right? They don't just happen outside with different things that happen, but even in our own hearts, 
we feel shifts of emotion. We can move from joy and then to sadness, from hope and then to despair. And I think some of the difficulty of these extremes of life is that it makes us wonder, what is God up with all of this? What is he up to uh, with these constant shifts and swings we feel in life? Uh, Like you wonder, is he unstable? Is he incompetent? Could he use a, a consultation? Could someone just tell him, can you make things a little bit more stable in life? Does he have a plan with your life or my life or with the world? Uh, does he, uh, is he shifting with the moods and tides of society? Or maybe he doesn't have control or power over any of it. Does God have power to change things? And I think our text today that Joe read from Acts 12, this morning, perhaps even for you providentially, helps to teach us something about the activity of God and his purposes in the extremes of life, uh, in the pendulum swings of life that we feel. In fact, more than that, I think God wants to show us through Acts 12 that we will be okay through the pendulum swings of life. Right? It's one thing that we face them, but what, what will happen? And I think Acts 12 wants to show us that you will be okay through these swings and changes of life. And Acts 12 will show us that in three ways. First, you will be okay through the pendulum swings of life because God is sovereign over life and death. In Acts 12, just to give us some kind of background, Acts 12, you're going to hear of this person named Herod, Herod the king. If you're familiar with the Bible, if you've been around church, you may have uh, heard that name before. There's actually a a few different Herods in the Bible, and they're not the same person. They're sort of along this family lineage line of these kings that have ruled uh, in different times. And this Herod that we see today, he is Herod Agrippa. And he, along with all of his uncles and fathers and forefathers, he is violent. Uh, He has blood on his hands. So here today we consider Herod Agrippa in Acts 12. And this Herod, he has a reputation unlike his his forefathers. He has a really good reputation with the Jewish people. He would do anything to maintain that reputation. He would do anything, say anything. If they were happy with him, then he was happy. He loved their praise. He loved their approval. He had built this taste now for flattery and for adulation. And during this time of the church, as it's just beginning to grow, the Jewish people actually want nothing less than for Christianity, this new religious movement, to die. Because it's starting to intrude on their culture, on their religion, on their lives. And so in the first couple of verses, what happens? You know that the Jewish people want this to be done. You know that Herod wants to please the Jewish people. And in the first few verses, Luke tells us that Herod was laying violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And then what? Herod kills James. Herod kills James. This is James the disciple, the the apostle. This was James who was in the inner circle of Jesus, the three, right? The one who was in his tightest crew. This is that James. He was a major force of the gospel. He was a leader of this brand new church. And in a moment, this major leader of the church, Herod beheads him. He cuts his head off. And he kills him. 
And you've got to hear that, and you've got to feel the weight of the loss of James for the church. Uh, Feel that with me. Here was a man who showed you. This was a good man. He actually gave everything up for the sake of Jesus. He gave his life to this, his time, his resources, his family, his energy, his whole life. He gave to this thing. He was faithful. He was fruitful. He was a good man. And what you see is, even if you have all that, you've given everything up, your life can be cut down just like that. We'll come back to James in a minute because there is more happening as Herod as he feels the, the praise of these people, right? Because what does he do next? Herod kills James. What does he do next? Verse 3 says, And when he saw that that pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put Peter in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. The Jewish people are loving what Herod is doing. They're, they're down with what he's doing. They want more of it. And it's almost like Herod is saying, you like that? Okay, I'm going to do, do some more. I'm going to arrest this other guy who's a very, very crucial piece of this. I'm going to arrest him. I'm going to kill him too because that's what's coming. Death is coming to Peter. The only reason Herod didn't kill him yet was because this happens to be during the Passover. He's not going to kill him on the Passover, but as soon as that's done, you better bet that he's getting the sword as well. Peter's about to be done. And this is not good news for the church. James has just been killed, and Peter is awaiting his execution. And if Peter is killed, it's as if this whole thing, the church, you wonder if it's just going to start unraveling. Because these are some of the pillars. These are some of the the major hitters of this church. And they're going to die. One's died. One's going to die. It's not looking good for the church. If you watched the Super Bowl this past year, you know how wonderful that win was. But Wentz went down. If Foles went down too, you know the hopelessness of the situation. You have zero trust in Sudfeld. Sudfeld's going to do nothing to get you a Super Bowl win. This is infinitely smaller, but it's that kind of a feel. You know these guys are crucial for this thing moving forward. And they're done. They are done for. If this is the kind of feel here, right, what does the church actually think? In fact, the stakes are really high. Because Acts 12 says that there are four squads of soldiers watching Peter. You know what that is? Each squad is four people. That means there's 16 guards on this one man, Peter, on rotating shifts so they they won't fall asleep during the night. He's in the prison shackled with chains, two shackles, one arm shackled to one guard, the other shackled to another. There's 14 other guards waiting around just to make sure nothing happens. I mean, there is a lot of security. This is like the maximum security wing of Herod's prison. It's locked down. There's no chance you're getting out of this. So let's read from verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. 
All right, so in this scene, uh, did you catch what Peter is up to as he is shackled in chains awaiting his execution? This dude is knocked out. He's fast asleep. He is sleeping while death awaits him. Who sleeps in chains when death comes right before you? And I don't know if it's just because he trusted in God so much or if he's just a really heavy sleeper. But when this angel actually comes to the prison, he comes with a piercing light. A bright light fills this cell, right? You've got to think, you've got a piercing light. An angel comes into your cell. The guy is still sleeping. It doesn't wake him up. It's like you're expecting this dramatic scene when the angel comes, right? He comes with, with this presence and this aura and light filling the room. You've got to imagine Peter's going to jump up and say, I'm ready to go. Let's get out of here. But he is snoring, slobbering all over the guards next to him. He is knocked out. Instead, what you have is this angel, he literally, Acts 12 says, he has to strike him. He literally has to whack him across the head and says, Peter, wake up. Wake up. I'm going to rescue you from here. And Peter's still sleeping. He has to wake up. He's still groggy as he gets hit by this angel. Let's continue to read from the end of verse 7. The chains, they fell off of his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. All right, so imagine the scene. Peter is miraculously set free of his chains by this angel of the Lord, they pass by multiple guards. This large iron gate just automatically, magically, miraculously opens up as they're walking. And Peter actually escapes this prison. But again, this, this chapter is filled with just irony and, uh, and comedy. The funny thing is that he thought this whole thing was just a dream. He didn't know if this was real life. He thought he was in the middle of a dream or having a vision. Verse 9 says, he did not know what was being done by the angel was real but thought he was seeing a vision. And I think, you know, it's funny why things like this aren't here. I think this reiterates for us that Peter had nothing to do with his rescue from prison. He had zero anything to do with this. This wasn't like, spoiler alert, this wasn't like Shawshank Redemption, right, where you have a guy for 20 years with a small hammer trying to get out of prison. This wasn't like that. This wasn't as if there was some... Uh, someone on the inside getting him out or someone on the outside who's going to bust him out. This was all God acting miraculously to rescue Peter. All of these impressive chains, right? These 16 soldiers, this big iron gate, this massive prison of maximum security could not keep God from rescuing Peter out of this. What seemed hopeless he stands over and above them. God is not handcuffed by earthly powers. He's not handcuffed by human shackles. Peter is rescued by God. It's a marvelous thing. It's a wonderful thing to witness this. And yet, as you read, maybe you notice one of the disturbing things about this whole thing 
is that you still have James, who died. James died. He was an apostle like Peter. He was a leader like Peter. But he was killed by Herod and not rescued by God. While for some reason, Peter is delivered from Herod and gets this dramatic prison escape. Right? You couldn't get more dramatic than this. And all James gets is, and Herod killed him. Why? Why does God spare one and not the other? There's really good news because Peter is set free, but what about James? Why does he get the most awful end of the stick, death? This would open up a whole can of worms, and we can go into all kinds of discussion, but I just want to say one thing on this that I heard this week, and then we'll move on. I found this really helpful for me. Why does James not get the same rescue that Peter gets? Why is Peter rescued? And that is that one of the reasons God rescues Peter is to show us that when James died, God was in control. I'll say that again. He rescues Peter to show that when James died, God was in control. It's not as if God couldn't do the exact same thing for James. It's not as if the circumstances weren't just right. It's not as if God didn't have the power. God didn't fumble the ball with James. He didn't miss an opportunity. He didn't make a mistake. The score isn't 1-1. The score is 2-0. It wasn't a fumble with James and a touchdown with Peter. God could have done the same thing, but what he wants us to know is that he has the ability. He's done it with Peter. He could have done the same thing with James. But what that should show us is that it's not as if God is out of control. There's probably more for us to learn and understand, and we'll talk through some of this more in a moment. But part of the reason is to show us that when God rescued Peter, he had James in mind. He had you in mind to show us that God was not out of control. He was in control. Listen, there is life and death even in the lives of faithful and good Christians. Right? These two men, they were faithful, good. They were, they were, they were stalwarts. They were, they were major play, players in the Christian church. And yet God doesn't guarantee that their life would turn one way or another. And the scriptures don't shy away from this reality at all. It puts it right in front of you. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, there's this, there's this hall of faith. All of these great men and women of, uh, of the Bible who, who lived by faith and walked by faith and did some amazing things by the help of God. And in, in Hebrews 11, here's what it says in verse 34. By faith, they escaped the edge of the sword. But then, three verses later in Hebrews 11:37, it says, by faith... They were killed with the sword. Two groups of people who were faithful to God, loved by God, held by God, and yet one group escapes the sword while the other one is killed by it. In our perspective, our, our human perspective, there is good news and then there is bad news. That makes sense to us. You see something good happen, it's good. You see something bad happen, it's bad. 
And yet, and I feel like this is the struggle of life, for God, there is no lack of control or love lost or failed plan when some of us suffer, some of us don't. When we receive good news, but others receive bad news. And yet, what we can trust is that God is sovereign over life and death, which is why a guy like Paul and Philippians can say, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's what Peter would have said of his life. It's what James would have said of his death. It's a different economy for God. And so, God is sovereign over life and death. So after Peter is rescued from prison, what you have now is you have this massive, amazing prison break. The angel then leaves, right? Peter sort of wakes up and realizes that everything that happened wasn't just a dream. It wasn't just a vision. Like, imagine that. This dude is about to be killed, was shackled in chains. Execution awaits him. The last thing that he remembers is he's just, he's beside these two soldiers. The next thing he knows, he's outside of the prison, looking at the prison that he was just imprisoned in. I mean, you've got to think, like, what's, what's going on in, in Peter's mind? It's bizarre. And in this bizarre state, you'd think the, the angel will at least stick around and give him some guidance. Instead, the angel just flies away, and Peter's left on his own. And you've got to remember, it's not just a nice, cute, God rescued him from the prison. Peter is a fugitive. Uh, Peter is a criminal now. He's out of prison. He's on, he's on the run from death row. And so Peter, after he escapes from prison, he runs to where he knows the gathered church is going to be, and that's in Mary's home. It's this, it's this woman in the Bible. She has a great home where people come to gather and gather as the church. And what's happening at Mary's home? What's the next thing that we see? This brings us to our second movement, that you will be okay through the pendulum swings of life because God answers the prayers of ordinary people. Right? If you remember back in verse 5, it says that Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. These believers, they were praying for Peter while he was in prison. They were praying earnestly, diligently, passionately praying for Peter. Right? Think of yourself. If you were in the shoes of these believers, all that had just happened. You've got James dead, Peter's in prison waiting to be executed. This thing just started. Aren't you, what, what would you feel? What would you feel as a result of this? Uh, maybe some of us would get torn up and we would be so uh, messed up that this is happening and we would weep without the ability to do anything at all. I mean, this is everything you've given your life to. Now it's unraveling and falling apart. Uh, maybe others of us would be complaining about this showing our fist to God and saying, why, why are you letting this happen? How could you let this happen? Maybe some of us being from Philly and we think we're tough would conjure up a plan and say, we're going to break him out of prison. We're going to get the best plan together and we're going we're gonna to get some dynamite and we're going we're gonna to bust him out of prison. We're going we're gonna to do this on our own. This is in our hands. We've got this. Uh, but how many of us would be drawn to our knees in prayer as a result of this. 
How many of us are convinced, right? That's the thing. How many of us are convinced that prayer would actually do something in this kind of a situation? Because can I be honest? Uh, If I were Peter and if I were in prison, I'd much rather you conjure up a plan to bust me out of prison than pray because to me, those kinds of things feel more tangible and real to, to leave my fate in the hands of human engineering and human thought and planning for me feels a lot more real a lot of the time than getting on my knees and, and praying. Or I, I feel like I would be more comforted knowing that you guys are thinking of a way to get me out than praying. Uh, that's the struggle that I feel as I think, and what if I were in their shoes? Because at the end of the day, prayer sometimes just feels like one of those religious spiritual practices that you do, but it doesn't really affect anything. It's pointless, right? Believing that God answers prayers is like believing in in unicorns or like a a leprechaun with a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. You don't believe that these things actually exist. You just, you sort of entertain the thought, but you don't believe in them. Like our prayers are hitting the ceiling, but no one's hearing. Prayers for weak people, not for strong-willed people like us who are savvy and can figure things out on our own. I may even believe in God, but I'm not going to pray to God. In fact, I don't even have the faith that my prayer will do anything. Do any of you feel that way when you even think about prayer or things in your life or in this world that you have concerns about, that you feel are swinging all over the place, pendulum swinging everywhere, and you can do nothing to control it? Prayer is not going to work, so I guess I'm left on my own. And yet I think, as, as weak as we may be in how we consider prayer, I think we will actually be surprisingly encouraged by the group of believers in Mary's home. They're earnestly praying, but I think we're going to be uniquely and surprisingly encouraged by these believers who are praying. Let's read from verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gates. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Tell me this scene doesn't sound like it's straight out of a sitcom show or something. Because here's what happens. You've got this group of believers praying for God to act on behalf of Peter. They're praying earnestly. You'd imagine with tears falling and their hearts weeping for their brother Peter and all of a sudden they hear a knock at the door and the servant girl Rhoda goes to the door and what what happens she recognizes Peter's voice she knows Peter's voice and she gets so excited that she doesn't even open the door she forgets to open the door and instead she goes to the people who are praying and says Peter's at the door he's come Peter's at the door then What happens with the believers who are praying? They don't believe her. They don't believe her. In fact, 
Acts 12 says that they think it's more possible that an angel is at the door than Peter. Uh, They think a white-robed, feather-winged, heavenly angel is more likely than God actually having answered their prayer, Peter being busted out of prison, standing at the door knocking. That's what they think. One pastor I listened to this week said, think of Peter. Peter has to be thinking, really? An angel breaks me out of a maximum security prison, and I can't get into the house? This would be a really dumb way for me to die. Because you've got to think, he's on the run. He's trying to get into the house. Everything that could have been done by God has been done. And these people who are praying for him won't even open the door. Guards chasing him probably while he's waiting. But he keeps knocking and knocking. And they finally, they finally open the door. And they see that it's Peter. They see with their own eyes it's Peter. It's actually him. And they were literally praying a moment ago. And look what God does. He answers their prayer. God answers their prayer. It's like one pastor put it. Thomas Watson says, The angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel to go to the prison. God used the prayer of these believers to effect rescue for Peter. God answers their prayers but here's the thing they prayed yes Uh, they prayed earnestly yes but by the looks of it they had no thought at all that God would actually answer their prayer they had no thought at all even when told Peter's at the door they tell young Rhoda we're praying for Peter shut up We're praying for him. He's at the door, and they say, be quiet. We're praying for Peter. This was no Justice League of prayers. This was no varsity team of strong faith prayers. This was a group of devastated, disheartened, weak faith believers who were praying. They were praying despite their weakness of faith and doubt. Uh, They were praying despite their doubts and confusion. And yet, God answers their, prayer, their prayers despite their weakness of faith and despite their doubt. This should bring a lot of encouragement to you and I. Seven Mile Road, if you are like me and struggle to pray or to believe that prayer even works, you've got to be encouraged by these Believers, Because when Peter knocked on that door, you would have expected these early Christians, because some of them have actually seen the resurrected Jesus with their eyes. They saw that Jesus died and he was buried, but then they actually saw Jesus rise, that God did that for Jesus. You've got to imagine that when they hear of Peter at the door, that they would say, of course, Peter has been rescued. 16 guards, an iron gate, that's no match for my God. Of course, he has rescued Peter. Instead, what you get is the least inspiring response possible. And what they say is, 16 guards, an iron gate. There's no chance that God's going to rescue them from that. He can't be rescued. This is an ordinary bunch of Christians. There's no star star Christians here or varsity Christians. This is JV as JV as you can get. 
And the really encouraging thing is that it wasn't the strength of their faith or the perfection or eloquence of their words that God answered their prayers. They were simply praying as children to their father, and God answered by doing far more abundantly than they could ever ask or think. Lastly, you will be okay through the pendulum swings of life because God, our King, triumphs over evil in the end. After Peter returns, he goes into hiding for some time. Herod finds out in the morning that the guards who are actually watching him, they were on duty. They, they let this prison escape happen. And what does he do? He kills the prison guards. And after some time passes, you sort of get put onto this other scene with Herod. It feels disconnected. It feels like all right, that was one story. And then within the same chapter, you have this other story with Herod connected to it. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that Luke, God, by his inspiration, puts these things together is to show us that Herod's violent acts against God and against his church and Herod's pride will not go unchecked. It's not going to go unanswered. And so we come into verse 20 where there is this dispute, right? To give you some background, there is this dispute between these two cities of Tyre and Sidon and Herod. You have these two cities uh, disputing with Herod and his rule because they have no food of their own. There's no farmland for them. They're on a coast. There's no ability for them to raise their own food. So they're actually dependent on Herod for food distribution. And because of political maneuvering, they are desperate for this, and they'll do anything to receive distribution of food from Herod. So let's consider this last section beginning in verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So Tyre and Sidon, they gain the ear of Herod by persuading his chief of staff, this dude with this crazy name, Blastus, to give them access to Herod. Right? So they finally gain the ear of Herod. And one day, Herod knows these people are desperate for, for him, for his, his mercy to them to receive food. And so one day, feeling the power of his position and the weight of his throne, Herod comes marching in with royal robes. And another historian named Josephus in his writings, a historian who records all these things that have happened during this time in his book, Antiquities, records actually this event of the day. And he says that Herod was wearing a robe made of silver. He was decked out in silver. And not only that, Herod scheduled this oration at dawn, at 5.30 in the morning, so that as the sun came up, you would have the glistening of the sun off of the silver. You would get this uh, weighty feel that this man is important. He's someone important, and he's to be dignified and worshipped and praised. 
Herod also commands his staff to create this high platform in this amphitheater to speak so that everyone can witness his greatness and so that they can have fear in their voice. He wants to portray himself like this great figure, this godlike figure. And he sits on his throne and he delivers this speech. We don't know what the speech is, but the people respond by shouting, the voice of a God. And not of a man. Herod receives praise and glory and breathes it in. It's like life for him. He loves it. He's feeding off of it. He has this taste now for flattery. He thinks he's God. And he ne never corrects the people. He never, he never stops the people and says, no, you've got it wrong. I'm, I'm not a God. There's only one God. He's the one who deserves glory and praise. Uh, what he doesn't do, reject this praise, is actually what a couple of chapters later in Acts, we'll see Paul and Barnabas actually do. Because when Paul and Barnabas speak, and the people hear it and are impressed with it, the same thing happens. They speak and praise Paul and Barnabas by saying, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. So Paul and Barnabas now have a decision. Am I going to receive this praise? Or am I going to bend it upwards towards God? And they reject it and say, Men, why are you doing these things? Why are you saying these things? Don't you know that we are men? We are of like nature. We're just like you. Instead, look to God. He's creator. He is the one true Lord. Look to him. And they, they deflect the praise that men want to give them to God. Paul and Barnabas knew who they were. They knew who God was. But Herod had no clue. He had no idea who he was. He had no idea who God was. If you've ever played the game Musical Chairs, awesome game to play, right? And you know that intense moment during the end of the game when the music is cranking, there's one chair left, but two people for that chair. You've got two people vying for the same chair. You know that as the intensity, the drama increases, the music's going to stop. One person's going to be on the ground. One person's going to be in that chair. And in this moment, Herod is vying for that chair that God holds. And in a moment, Luke says, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because Herod did not give God the glory and he was eaten almost in the worst, lowest possible way, eaten by worms. And then he breathed his last. For the people then, Acts 12, and for us now, it's this stunning moment of realizing that the power and the might and the reign of God the King is real. It's, it's a stunning reminder, realization that in James's story, it's not as if God was this passive person who let all these things happen. And then you started to feel God, may, maybe a little bit because you saw it with Peter. He brought him out of prison. But then you get to this moment and you realize that there is no one at the end of the day, no one who will take the throne of God. Because he is not just the king. He's not just the one who rules. He is the king of kings. He is the one, indeed, who sets the rulers in motion. He's the one who appoints kings and presidents. 
They don't breathe without his permission. They can lose it like that. God is king. God is ruler. God is the one who reigns on the throne. And no one will be able to take him off of that. No one breathes for a moment without the grace of God. And so in this moment, we remember that. God is king. Don't be deceived. James died. That is a horrible thing. We face extremes in life that are horrible. But this moment, you look to that and say, God is in control. God is king. The power and reign of every earthly king and ruler and president lasts only for a moment. But God stands over Herod, over him, and reminds us that you could kill You could oppose, you could reject the gospel of Christ, but in the end, God wins. There's nothing else to say, God wins. And what I love about this story being in this chapter, in the whole of Acts 12, coupled with the, uh, the death of James, is that it reassures us that God is not out of control and he is not powerless. He's a father who loves us. He's a father who will fight for us. He will, Romans reminds us, that he will take vengeance on those who do harm against us. It it belongs to God. And this passage is sort of a small microcosm glimpse of the reality of what happens here. Who's really king. Uh, He's a father who loves us and will fight for us. Uh, Last week... Me and Steph took Reagan to the park around the corner from our house, and it was a great moment just to be able to get outside, and we saw Reagan on the slides and on the swings, and she was having a great time. And then this little runt <laughs> kept cu- cutting in front of her on every line, like, like pushing her off just to cut in front of him. And I, I told Steph, you've got to hold me back, because I think I'm going to punch this kid in the face. I mean, he was... He was making me angry. He was making my little girl miss out on joy and excitement. And she had this look in her face, and I was just getting angry and frustrated. And I thought, man, like that's my small love as a father. Uh, that's my small ability, my boundaries of protecting my daughter. But what about God? Every harm that you have endured. Our Father will not forget or let go. And not only is He love, not only is He in control, but He has no bounds to His ability to be able to repay evil. He has no bounds to be able to restore and and redeem and do this work of restoration in your life. He is not like earthly fathers. He is greater, infinitely greater. This God will not let go of what evil has taken place in the world. Herod may have killed James. In fact, Peter, who was rescued from prison, will eventually die the death of a martyr and also be killed for the sake of the gospel. Christians all over the world throughout history, even right now in this moment, are being persecuted and are being killed by the sword because of their faith in Jesus. But this passage shows us that God wins in the end, and will triumph over all evil. And guess what? We are on our Father's side. We are with Dad. We are with Him. In fact, 
following Herod's death. It's this beautiful little verse. Verse 24 tells us that the word of God increases and multiplies. This thing has not been snuffed out. This thing has not been killed because of great and mighty Herod. In fact, God advances the gospel even more. And that's how this this passage, this story ends. So as we step back from Acts 12, as we sort of take a, a bird's eye view of what's happened in this passage, consider this. It opens with James dead, Peter imprisoned, and Herod triumphing. It ends with Herod dead, Peter free, and the gospel triumphing and advancing. That's what I love about this chapter. You see all of the swings in life, all of the things that we look at as extremes and wonder what is God doing. But in this passage, it's this glorious picture of the pendulum swings of life and yet one in which God himself is not swung. He's not surprised. He's not lacking power. It's one in which his mysterious and good and sovereign rule over all things allows us to know that we will be okay. That these swings in life, we can actually look at the story in Acts 12 and say, it's actually going to be okay. We're, we're going to be okay. Not easy, but it's going to be okay. In fact, the gospel is that way, isn't it? Isn't this essentially what the gospel is like? Jesus dies. That's bad news. Really bad news. And like James, there's no rescue. There's no angels that come and bring him off of the cross of his suffering He's not rescued. He dies. But then Jesus rises. Another shift. That's really good news. He bursts forth from out of the grave. And this means that we too are rescued from our sin. And we too are rescued from death. And though we struggle with sin, witness evil, and experience death in this life, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave is like this giant proclamation over all of life saying, don't worry. You will be okay because Jesus is triumphant and has conquered sin and death. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. So two things to take away as we leave quickly and then we'll be done. First, anchor your faith in God and not in circumstances. Anchor your faith in God and not in circumstances. Listen, there will be many shifts in life. There's going to be a lot of times where you swing, and it's going to be really good, and you're going to swing the other way. The same exact thing is going to feel like the worst curse in the world. You're going to have real moments of joy and laughter and, and accomplishment and celebration. All those things are going to be beautiful, and you should celebrate that and rejoice and thank God for those things. There will be joy and laughter, but there will also be pain and mourning and disappointment. In all of this, especially in the deepest moments of sorrow and doubt, consider the bigger story of redemption for you and this world. Consider passages like Psalm 139, when it says, Oh God, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. There is light in the darkness of this world and in your life. And though we cannot see it, 
our God, who is the king on the throne of this world and our lives, sees the light as bright as day. You can trust in that God. Right? So anchor your faith in God, not circumstances. And two, simply pray even in your weak faith. Pray even in your weak faith. See that room of unimpressive, weak faith believers who never thought God would even answer their prayer. Even after he answered it, God answers prayers. Even those made by people like you and me, ordinary people who have little to no faith that God will do anything. So pray even in your weak faith. Do you have a need today? Do you lack faith that God can answer it? Would you leave that to him and would you just pray? Would you leave God's answer to him and would you just pray? Because God calls us to bring our anxieties, our cares, all of our troubles, our sins, all of it to him. Because he cares for us. Allow our father to make the call. But would you come to him and pray and ask for faith that God would increase your belief that he answers prayer? Allow the example of these believers to shape your prayer even in your weakness of faith. So Seven Mile Road, this morning, hear this. Hear this again. Know that you will be okay through the pendulum swings of life because God is sovereign over life and death. He hears prayers even from ordinary people with weak faith like us. And he will triumph over evil in the end. Let's pray. God, we pray even in this moment, weak as it may be, we pray that we would trust God, that you are sovereign over all things, over life and over death, that even our small attempts to pray and to speak to you, that you hear them and that you actually answer prayer of even weak faith believers. And God, help us to believe in this moment that you triumph over evil, not just now, but in the end, you are victor. God, you win. And we are on your side. So that means, oh God, for this life, we can actually trust in you. We pray that you would give us uh, the courage to face life even when it is difficult. We pray especially for the moments of deep sorrow and times when good news has turned quickly into bad news and we have to face the reality of life. Help us, oh God, in those moments to trust who you are, your sovereignty, and run to you in prayer. We are yours. We are held by God, our Father. Like children, God, we are desperate for you in all of life. And the really good news is that you don't block your ear from us, but you hear us, you rule all things, and you love us, and in the end, we will be okay. So help us to believe that. It's in Christ's name that we pray.